Uh, If you want to turn your Bibles to uh, James chapter 4, we'll look there in just a few minutes at verses 1 through 12. Uh, I recently started reading a book uh, by a man named Mark Schoen. He's an assistant clinical professor at UCLA's Geffen School of Medicine. And uh, the book is called Your Survival Instinct is Killing You. Now, before I say uh, any more about the book, let me just say I've not read very much of it, uh, so I'm not endorsing it. And, uh, and I often read books that I even know going into it, I may not agree with the book, so I'm not endorsing the book. It may be a good book, may not be a good book, uh, but not, not as though I think you guys actually run out and get books that I reference, but in case somebody would, uh, I, I'm not endorsing it, I have no idea if it's going to be a good book or not. But... In the early part of the book that I've read so far, Dr. Schoen does a great job of articulating some things that I have long felt, long thought about life in the 21st century. Uh, He writes about the stress, the anxiety, and the general unhappiness that so many people seem to experience today. Uh, Here are a few things that he says. Those of us living in the developed world are a lot safer now than ever before. Medical advancements have lengthened the average lifespan by several decades. Crime is relatively low. We have access to an enormous number of conveniences that make life easier, things such as the Internet, and, of course, we could list a whole bunch of other technologies. Uh, We have plentiful food supplies. And then he goes on and on, and he continues to talk about all the advantages, all the conveniences that we have uh, in the 21st century in the developed world. Then he goes on and says, but we've also grown increasingly less tolerant of being uncomfortable, and our threshold for discomfort is rapidly shrinking. At the mere hint of being uncomfortable, there is an urgent need to take action to relieve or to end it. And if it's not managed expediently, then there is an escalating fear that we won't be able to cope or that something horrific will follow. Mr. Schoen writes about how uh, many seem to live uh, emotionally on the edge, you know, tempers triggered very easily. Uh, It seems like many uh, people are are almost always on the verge of an emotional breakdown. And here's what he writes. It's as if we feel suffocated in a world where we shouldn't feel that way. Despite an enormous array of goods and services to make us feel happy, comfortable, and safe, we're rarely content, and any hint of struggle causes us to feel physically and emotionally threatened. We are, put simply, not comfortable in a world that is increasingly designed for comfort. And then one final quote from Schoen, despite the growing ubiquity of comfort in our lives, we've become increasingly oversensitive to discomfort, so much so that even subtle adversity and general uneasiness have become capable of inculcating fear and unsettling our physical and emotional health. So Schoen is telling us that large numbers of people are unhappy, even miserable, in the midst of an existence that by any objective historical standard is really, really good. We might even say wonderful. And many of those miserable people 
are Christians. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but many of you know Christians who are miserable, and some of you, even though those around you may not know it, are among those miserable Christians. And it's even more curious when a Christian is miserable. Because in addition to all of those conveniences that, that, that we benefit from that should make life better, Christians know Jesus. They've been saved from their sin. They have received the one who is the way, the truth, and the life. They are loved and cared for by God. Their past is forgiven. Their future is secured. They are indwelled by the very Spirit of God who gives strength, who gives peace, who gives joy. And yet, many Christians are miserable. Paul and Silas could sing praises to God sitting in prison, but we live with unprecedented advantages and comfort are loved by God, saved, and on our way to heaven, and yet many of us are miserable. Paul and Silas could sing praises to God in prison. We sit in air-conditioned living rooms, watching flat-panel TVs, sitting on nice, comfortable sofas, running our toesies through nice plush carpet, sipping sweet tea, and crying out, God, why me? <laughs> Today we come to James 4, 1, 12, 1 through 12 as we continue this series, Louder Than Words. And what we're going to find from James today is how it is that a Christian can be miserable. At least one of the main ways that a Christian can be miserable. I think it is the thing that accounts for Christians being miserable. We're going to find out how God responds to miserable Christians. And then if we're willing to receive it, we're going to find out how we can quit being miserable. That's what I've titled today's message. How to quit being miserable. So if you're here today and you're miserable, pay attention. But if you're not miserable, still pay attention because God may call you alongside someone who is and James might be able to help you help them and who knows that somewhere down the road your own decision making will lead you to a place of being miserable and maybe the words of James will come back to you in those moments and help you to get on the right, uh, right path. So here's how our text reads in the NIV. Now, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You want something, but don't get it. You kill and covet, but you cannot have what you want. You quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. You adulterous people. Don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred toward God? Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think Scripture says without reason that the Spirit He calls to live in us envies intensely, but He gives us more grace? That is why Scripture says God opposes the proud, 
but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. So let's consider for the next few moments how it is that James tells us a Christian can come to the place of being miserable. He begins verse 1, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Now remember he is writing to Christians. So it seems as though there was some fighting and there was some quarreling that was happening within the Christian community that James was writing to. Verse 2 references people killing each other. Now most commentators believe that this is figurative language, that that it was more that the anger that was in their heart was, was as if they were killing one another. But a few commentators believe that this might actually have happened. There might have actually been killing going on within the Christian community. So what we see here are miserable people fighting, quarreling, mistreating each other. Uh, isn't it your experience that people who are quick to fight, quick to argue, uh, people who mistreat others, usually when you find out a little bit more about that person, they are a miserable person. And so what we see here are miserable people. Evidently, there were some miserable Christians that James was writing to. And so why is it that they were so miserable? James sheds light on this. Look at what he says in the second half of verse 2. Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? He says that the reason that people are fighting and quarreling and miserable is because there is a war that is raging on the inside of them. There's something that's happening on the inside of these people, a battle that others don't see, and this battle is then resulting in all kind of negative things that then others do see. And here's the battle that's going on inside of people. They have an insatiable appetite for things they don't have, things they want but can't figure out how to get, and it's causing them to be miserable. Verse 2, you desire but do not have. You covet but can't get what you want, and so you quarrel and you fight. And they're even more frustrated because... According to verse 3, they're asking God for what they want, but they're still not getting it. And James tells us why they're not getting from God what they ask of him. It is because they, they are asking with wrong motivations. They're only asking for things that will fulfill their own pleasures. They're only asking in a selfish way to try to get more pleasure for themselves. And God isn't bound to answer those requests for more and more for ourselves. Have you ever noticed within yourself an insatiable appetite for more? If you say no, you're not telling the truth. <laughs> there is within humans an insatiable appetite for more. 
William McDonald says that the reason so many unhappy Christian homes exist, and that the reason that too many churches struggle with division is that too many Christians are ceaselessly striving to satisfy their lust for pleasures and possessions and to outdo others. We are miserable because of strong desires that are inside of us that we can't figure out how to satisfy. Too many of us are never satisfied. We always want more. I think this is what Dr. Schoen is is writing about. We have a great deal of comfort, but we want more comfort. We have a great deal of security, but we need more security. We have a great deal of convenience, but we want more convenience. We have a great deal of entertainment and relaxation, but we want more. By any objective standard, even the most uh, modest means among us have a great deal of money, but we want more. The writer of Ecclesiastes uh, dealt with this so very well. He said, whoever loves money never has enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with their income. The writer of Ecclesiastes said it this way as well. Everyone's toil is for their mouth, yet their appetite is never satisfied. There is an insatiable desire that we have for more. We want more pleasure. We want more prestige. We want more possessions. And we can become almost rabid in pursuing those things. But James says we desire but don't have, we covet but can't get, and so we're miserable. So Christians can be miserable because there is a hidden war raging on the inside of them. Now let's look at just a couple practical examples of how this hidden war can have really negative consequences on relationships. These are fictitious people I'm talking about here for the next couple of minutes. Uh, Jane and John... Jane and John. They've been married a few years. John has a decent job that provides a decent income. Jane works part-time, and she does okay. They live in a, uh, a nice home. Not a, not a great home, but they live in a nice, comfortable home. But they've noticed over the last few years that all of their friends are moving into homes that are much nicer than theirs, and they become dissatisfied. Uh, Jane especially becomes dissatisfied. I'll pick on John here in a minute. But for this one, Jane especially is dissatisfied. Uh, John is dissatisfied because he notices that all of his friends are now driving nicer and cooler cars than him. I don't have that problem because I drive a 2004 Dodge Caravan. But I can relate to people who, you know, are worried about their cars. Uh, <laughs> So, so John wants a newer, more expensive, and a cooler car. And they both want to furnish their home in a way that they really can't justify on their income. So what they eventually do is they, they do stretch for that nicer house. Of course, that has to be financed, uh, you know, um, good interest rate, but still financed. Uh, John decides that he will buy the car. He doesn't have a down payment, and so he has to finance the the whole cost of the car. They go ahead and buy the furniture on credit, and what they soon realize is that their desires have outpaced their ability to facilitate their desires, and what they now have is financial 
pressure. About the time they figure out that these weren't smart moves to make, they find out that they are expecting a child, and the financial pressures mount. Now John becomes irritable. He feels the pressure, and he's unhappy. Jane's unhappy that John can't make more money like his friend Joe, and so she places pressure on him. John's mad that Jane won't go work full-time instead of part-time, so she, he puts pressure on her. And now they're miserable for this simple reason they wanted more. Nothing was wrong with what they had. It just hadn't kept pace with what others had. They wanted more. Now let's consider how this can make for division within churches. Fictitious people, Sam and Sally, they have been leading a ministry in the church for a number of years now, but they've noticed that a newer couple leading a newer ministry have been getting a lot more visibility within the church lately, while their ministry has sort of happened out of the spotlight. Their desire for more recognition causes them to begin to walk around with a chip on their shoulder toward the other couple, really just a chip on their shoulder toward everyone. They're found speaking somewhat negatively about the other couple's ministry. They begin to complain to a growing circle of people that they feel underappreciated and they're drawing some to their way of thinking. The other couple find out that they're being spoken about in a negative manner and they push back. They unfortunately begin to share with a a growing number of people as well how hurt and uh, upset they are about this unfair treatment. Growing number of church members are now aware of this situation, begin to take sides, and there's growing division within the church. And it's all because one couple had a desire for more prominence and more recognition. We want more. We don't have it. We can't figure out how to make it happen. And it creates turmoil in us. And it makes us miserable. Now James has something to say about this. Look at verse 4. Don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred toward God? Christians can be miserable because of this war that is raging within them. And the war that is raging within them is the result of our friendship with the world. This is what we talked about last week. We're Christians. But what we are doing is we are living according to worldly wisdom instead of living according to godly wisdom. This is what it means, uh, this uh, reference to friendship with the world. It means that we are buying in to the world's way of doing things, and we are rejecting God's way. John and Jane are living by worldly wisdom says you're going to be happy if your house is bigger and your car is nicer and your furniture is better. Sam and Sally are living by worldly wisdom. They're running a ministry, but they're living by worldly wisdom. And too many times you and I live according to worldly wisdom. We're living like this life is all there is and that we have to get ours now. Paul Cedar writes, as Christians, we're plagued by a residual of our old nature, which brings us to lusting, fighting, and conflicting. 
Our misery, one way that we can think about this is our misery is a result of attempting to have Jesus while still attempting to fulfill the lust of our old nature. Many Christians are miserable because they have identified with Christ, but they have not yet yielded to him. They've said yes to salvation, but they're trying to maintain control of their own lives. They're trying to be the Lord of their own lives. We saw something attractive enough in Jesus that we made a start with him, but we continue to believe the lie that our real happiness is going to come by acquiring more of what our old nature desires, possessions, pleasures, prestige. And so we claw after those things. And when we don't get the more that we're trying to get, we become miserable. What we're doing is we're trying to find happiness where it simply cannot be found. It can only be found in Jesus. And yet we're trying to find it in money and stuff and entertainment and power and sex and leisure and bigger houses. And no matter how much of any of that stuff we get, we are never satisfied. And here's why. Because those things are absolutely incapable of satisfying us. Many of us, if we are honest with ourselves, we have tried to satisfy ourselves with one or many of the things on that list that I just mentioned. We've tried over and over again, perhaps for decades, and yet we're not satisfied. But we keep trying, living out in our own lives that definition of insanity. You know what it is, right? Doing the same thing over and over again and expecting different results. Wasn't satisfied with my house at 1,200 square feet, so I went to 1,600 square feet. Wasn't satisfied with 1,600 square feet, so I went to 2,200 square feet. I'm not speaking about myself, but uh, up to this point I am. Now, I wasn't satisfied with, uh, (laughs) from here on I'm not. I wasn't satisfied with 2,200 square feet, so I went up to 3,000 square feet. What more doesn't satisfy? Uh, I have experienced this in my own life. I remember the first house that Michelle and I uh, bought uh, on Mound Street in Eastmore, Ohio, 1,200 square feet, two bedrooms, one bathroom. Actually, I'm not even sure it was 1,200. It might have been 1,000. Two bedrooms, one bathroom, little one-car detached garage. I absolutely, actually the second house we bought, absolutely loved that place. Loved it. Loved it. Then a few years, didn't love it anymore. So we moved to Pickerington. There the house was 1,600 square feet. I remember moving into that house and thinking, well, this is it. I don't ever need another house. As long as I live, this is great. Of course, then we planted a church in Pataskala and we wanted to live out here. But, uh, but we decided to do a few more square feet as we moved to Pataskala. And when I moved into that house, I remember thinking, okay, now really, I thought this before, but really, this is it. I don't need anything better than this. In about three years, I had noticed all the things I didn't like about that house and didn't have much privacy and it has a two-story entrance and those are wasted space and out of style now and just all these kind of things. 
So, do you feel sorry for me yet? Um, my point is more. At each step, you think, okay, this is the one that will satisfy. And then you find something about that that doesn't satisfy. It, it, is, it is craziness. And yet, it's what we do. We keep trying to satisfy ourselves in ways that it just doesn't work. And so now at this point, when you think about what we're doing, when you think about this futile attempt to satisfy ourselves in ways that we can't be satisfied, we actually sound kind of pitiful. We, we sound pitiful. We sound like we ought to be pitied. And in a sense, that is true. But we are not without responsibility here. It isn't as though our condition is something we aren't responsible for. I mean, we have, if, if you have been saved, you have Christ living on the inside of you. We have the power of the Holy Spirit available to us. Everything we need to not be miserable, God has given us. We are to be pitied, but not as those who have no way to resolve their problem. And here's the cold, hard fact about many Christians who are miserable. Verse 4. You adulterous people. We are miserable because our, our loyalties are divided. We want Jesus in some sense, but we want the things of the world too. And our actions say we want the things of the world more. And it is this trying to have Jesus and the world both that make Christians miserable. It's a miserable place to live. And far too many Christians are exactly in this place. We want Jesus in some sense, but we also want more of what the world offers that is in direct conflict to what God knows is best for us. And so we go back and forth. We go to Jesus, then to the world, from the world back to Jesus. Jesus, back to the world, just like the adulterer who goes back and forth from their spouse to their secret lover. What James has identified here in the first five verses of chapter 4 accounts for the vast majority. I, I think I would go so far as to say it just accounts for the reasons that Christians are miserable. So if we find ourselves in this place, the kind of person that James is writing about, there are some things that we need to know. First of all, I think it's important if you find yourself in this uh, position here today that you know how God responds to you. That you need to know what God's posture toward you is, what his attitude toward you is. And then we need to know how we can quit living this way, how we can quit being miserable. So let's see how it is that God responds to us. What is God's posture toward us when we're miserable? 
when we have this war raging on the inside of us, when we have allowed friendship with the world and desire for the world to cause us to reach for more of what the world offers, what's God's posture when we haven't yielded to him? How does God respond to us when we are adulterous? Yeah, well, what's God do? How's he respond? Look at verse 5. Do you think Scripture says without reason that the Spirit He caused to live in us envies intensely? The, the phrasing is a little difficult, but uh, most Bible scholars say that, that this phrase amounts to this. God is jealous for you. God is jealous for you. It's like that song that we've sung in recent weeks, He is jealous for me. And then I believe the next line is something like, love's like a hurricane. He has love for us that is unfathomably strong, powerful, and persistent. God is jealous for you. Not in an angry sort of way. He's jealous because he loves you. He's jealous because he knows that your joy and happiness and contentment can only be complete if you turn to him away from those things. He knows that you can only be happy if you realize that the places you're looking for happiness, the roads that you're traveling lead to nowhere. They are wells that are empty They are food that doesn't satisfy. God is not angry with you, but he is in love, fiercely jealous for you. And then James writes these comforting words to us, verse 6. He gives us more grace. More grace. Those who are miserable because their loyalties are divided. Those who are miserable because they've been trying to have the world and God too. God gives more grace to those kind of people. Listen, if what we've been seeing in James today sums up your life, you need to know that God loves you and you need to know that God has more grace to extend to you. You have not exhausted his grace. You have not stretched it to its breaking point. You have not run out of the rope of God's grace. If you need more grace, God has more grace to give you. It really is true, as Paul wrote in Romans, that where sin abounds, grace does much more abound. The specific context in that is is that As sin like grows and grows and grows and becomes worse and worse and worse, God's grace just becomes greater still. Never run out of God's grace. You have not gone too far. You haven't done too much. Your loyalties haven't been divided too often. You have not been adulterous too long. God has enough grace for every single one of us here today, no matter how much grace we need. But here's the truth. We do have to come to the end of ourselves. We do have to yield. We do have to see the error of our ways. 
We need to realize what we're doing, the damage we're doing, is we're trying to have God in the world too. We need to realize that we have aligned ourselves with the world and against God. We need to admit the utter futility of trying to find happiness and joy and contentment in the things that the world offers us. We need to finally realize that sin can't deliver what it promises. That it's an empty well, that there's no water there, that there's no satisfaction there. We need to finally realize that looking to sin for what we desire only sets us up for a lifetime of turmoil, an inner war that constantly rages, that does great damage to ourselves, that does great damage to our family, may do great damage to your church, and does great damage to your Christian witness. Basically, if what we've talked about so far today describes our lives We need to wise up. We need to come to our senses. We need to turn from the destructive path we're on. We need to turn back to the God who has all the grace that we need. And not only has all the grace that we need, but who has all of the power we need to stop being miserable. So if you're miserable here today, turn to God and receive his grace once again. But then James tells us that if we want to quit being miserable, there are some things that we're going to need to do. God supplies the power, but there is a role for us to play. God does it, but our cooperation is required. I have tried far too many times in my life to put no effort into it and hope that God would somehow just make me be the person that he created me to be. It's not worked out that way. There are some things that we need to do. There is a role for us to play. Verse 7, submit yourselves then to God. Okay? So verse 7 through 10, what James is going to tell us is how we can quit being miserable. The first thing he says, submit yourselves then to God. This means we are to be subject to God. We are to be ready to listen to him, quick to obey him. We need to be tender-hearted and contrite before him, realizing that he knows what's best for us, rather than continuing to insist that we know what's best, even though our lives have proven that we don't. Submit yourselves then to God. We have to do that. God supplies the grace to do it. God supplies the power to do it. But that doesn't mean there's nothing for us to do. We do have to submit ourselves. We have to yield. We have to get over ourselves enough to say, yes, God, I give up. I turn my life over to you. The reason we have a role to play, the reason we have to do something that we have to submit, I think was articulated very well by a former pastor of mine who was fond of saying this, God is a gentleman. He does not push himself on those who don't want him. He doesn't force himself on you. God's a gentleman. So he'll supply the grace and the power that we need, but we have to be willing to submit. We have to be willing to say, yes, God, I I want you. I want you in my life. I want you to help me. I want you to do this for me. Verse 7, the second part of verse 7, James tells us another thing we need to do. 
if we want to quit being miserable, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Resist the devil. This is something we can't do if we haven't first submitted to God. By the way, keep in mind, you're no match for the devil, and I'm no match for the devil on our own. We can only resist the devil if we've first submitted to God. But being submitted to God doesn't mean that the devil won't occasionally come and try to mess up our lives. He still does. And if we are to keep him from doing so, it requires something. We have to actually resist him. We have to stand against him. We have to be aware of his tactics. We have to be wise to him, and we have to actively resist. C.S. Lewis wrote a great novel called The Screwtape Letters. It's a book that I think every Christian should read. Uh, It's a story of a senior demon training a younger demon in the finer points of getting people to destroy their lives. It's a novel, but I believe it is absolutely full of spiritual insight about how the enemy of our soul works in such subtle ways to manipulate us and get us to go on destructive paths. I would recommend you read it. Now, realize what James says here. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Now, I haven't, you know, looked in the Greek, and I didn't look at a whole bunch of what a bunch of different scholars had to say about this, but here's what I think I can say with pretty good confidence. If the devil is not fleeing from us, we're not resisting. Because James seems pretty clear here that if we'll resist, he will flee. And here's something I think we should know about the devil. He doesn't have to work hard to get most of us. Or maybe he does you. Maybe it's just the rest of us. He is used to having a pretty easy time with people. Christians included. He likes to pick on people who don't put up a fight. He's like the mugger who thinks that everybody in the world will just give in to his wishes the way all the people so far have until the time that he decides to mug the little old lady. And instead of her going along with his plan, she takes her 40-pound purse and hits him upside the head and he runs away. The devil is not used to resistance. I don't mean to be political here, but he is like the, the, the home robber who, who has so far in his life worked mainly in more touchy-feely parts of the country where he doesn't really have to worry about very many people owning guns. And then somehow he finds himself in the heartland of the Midwest and he decides that he's going to rob a home. And so just as he picks the lock and, and goes in and looks up, he has met with a short barrel shotgun just inches from his face and this kindly greeting, I don't know what you think you're doing, but you better get your sorry butt out of here. (laughs) He's not used 
to resistance. He's used to people just falling over like you've done and like I've done far too many times just falling over, surrendering. Okay, okay, there's the devil. I got to do what he says. He's not used to having to work hard to get us to do what he wants. And so when we resist, when we put up a fight, when we say, no, actually, I'm not going along with this plan, he flees. So fight. Just a little bit of fight goes a long way. Because let me tell you what happens. You, you know that, that story that almost everybody has in their childhood if, if uh, they... Uh, were a, a younger brother and they had an older brother where, you, you know, they were in a fight and they were facing a bully and, and finally their family had decided and they had, uh, had helped them decide they had to stand up to the bully and so they do and the bully runs away and they feel real good about themselves but what the rest of the family knows is that the big brother was standing behind the little brother getting the message to the bully, you better do what he's saying or I'm going to eat the living <clears throat> out of you. You know that story? I didn't tell it the smoothest, but you know what I'm talking about, right? Okay. Well, that's what happens. That's what happens when we resist the devil. It's not in our strength. It's not like he's running from us. But what happens is when we finally decide, I want to submit to God and I want to resist the devil, our older brother, Jesus, comes behind us. And he gets the message of the devil. Leave this one alone. Leave this one alone. Verse 8. Come near to God and he will come near to you. And James tells us what this looks like. Wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Trying to have the world and God too is not a light thing. When James says, turn your laughter to mourning, it indicates that many in this Christian community were taking their sin lightly. And that is a problem that has persisted for 2,000 years. Taking sin lightly. And we take it very lightly uh, when we try to, to hold on to God, but also hold on to the world. There is a war that is raging in us when we do that that indicates what we really want is the world. We have to see our worldly desires for what they really are, spiritual adultery. We have to see them for what they really are, the cause of turmoil in our hearts and lives. We have to see them for what they are, empty wells with no water, no life. We have to see them for what they really are, the cause of resentment and coveting and fighting that do damage to our lives, our homes, and even to our churches. We have to come near to God. And then finally, verse 10 says, humble yourselves before the Lord. Paul Cedar writes, when there are conflicts and fighting and warrings within a church, the sin of pride is always present. He goes on and says, pride is the very foundation of the lifestyle that displeases God. God hates pride so much. And you know, it's pride that says, I know best how to be happy. 
God doesn't know. He made me, but God doesn't know best. I know best. That's pride. God hates pride so much that verse 6 says, God opposes the proud. I don't think you can find anywhere else in Scripture where it says God opposes someone. He opposes the proud. God stands against the proud. Those who won't yield to him, won't admit their need, won't admit that he knows better how life is lived, God opposes those people. So if you're here today insisting that you know best and God doesn't know what he's talking about in your life, James says God is standing in opposition to that. But he gives grace to the humble. You want God's grace, you want God's favor, you want life that is truly life. You have to be humble enough to admit that your way isn't working, that clawing for all the world offers is a fool's errand. You have to be humble enough to look to God, the source of the life that is truly life, the life that will bring you peace and contentment and joy. Look at verse 10, and I'm going to wrap this up. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. Here is a lie that we believe. We believe we have to lift ourselves up. This lie has been told from the beginning. And we believe the lie that's been told from the beginning. And here's the lie. God doesn't want our best. God is holding out on us. God is depriving us of good things. God is trying to keep us down. That is what the serpent said to Adam and Eve, what he convinced them of. God is holding out on you. God is trying to keep you down. But the truth is that God will lift us up. God will provide us the life that is really life if we'll just be humble enough to trust that he knows what he's doing, that he knows what's best, and that he knows best how we can live a meaningful, peaceful, joy-filled life. Let's look uh, just at a couple quick references where we are assured that, that God has our best interest at heart, that, that Jesus has our best interest at heart. John 15, 10 and 11, this is Jesus. If you obey my commands... You will remain in my love, just as I have obeyed my Father's commands and remain in his love. I have told you this. Okay, what's he told us? If we obey his commands, we remain in his love. He's told us this. Why? So that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. Why does God tell us, do this, don't do that? Why does God say this is good for you, that you need to stay away from? Why does he do that? It is so his joy will be in us. And our joy will be complete. John 10.10, 10. again, this is Jesus speaking. The thief, the enemy of our souls, the devil, comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they, that you, may have life and have it to the full. 
Some translations say to have life in abundance. I love the way the New Living Translation says that the thief's purpose is to steal and kill and destroy. My purpose is to give them a rich and satisfying life. A rich and satisfying life. We have to stop believing, friends, that the world has something better to offer us than God does. We have to believe the truth that God wants our best, that God has our best, and that God will provide our best. When we believe this, the war that's inside of us can subside and we can quit being miserable. Christians should not be miserable. And they don't have to be. You should not be miserable. And you don't have to be. Listen to James. Heed his words. And you really can quit being miserable. Why don't you stand